Hey everybody, welcome to the Art Fight Podcast. I'm Joe Nolan. I'm here with uh, my co-host uh, Brian Siskind. It's a beautiful day here in Nashville, Tennessee, and we're talking to uh, uh, a filmmaker and a artist and a traveler and a uh, concert promoter and a, a visionary. I'm just going to go ahead and call him a visionary. Stuart Sweezy, we're really happy to have you here with us today. Cool. Well, really good to be here. Yeah. <laughs> And Stuart, you're out in L.A. right now. How's it? It's a beautiful day in L.A. It, it seems like it is from the from your window there. I can see the light on your face. Beautiful. I want to like make a movie with the light that's on your face right now. It's all yours. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> we got the bandwidth. Don't worry about it. No, yeah, it's it's really nice. And for us, you know, like a nice day means not excessively hot. So because that can be kind of a drag, you know. But you know, in the pandemic, the smog is way down here. It's weird. It doesn't even feel oh, like. Wow, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. You go outside and you're like, this light doesn't look right. This is really, <laughs> yeah. it's not as yellow as I want it to be. Yeah. I kind of <laughs> that feeling in my lungs, you know? Yeah. 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 Breathing. <laughs> so, so Stuart, Stuart yeah. if, if we asked you to pick out a particular record that's in your collection behind you, would you know how to find it quickly or would it take you a while? No, super disorganized back. I mean, it was at one point alphabetical. <laughs> yeah. Right. Kind of with soundtracks in their own section alphabetically, but that's kind of gone by the wayside. And I have to admit, my vinyl consumption has gone down a lot. But I, you know, it's, I'm one of those guys, like with comic books and with with records. Like I, I can't really part with a lot of them. So right, but it was a huge part of my life. So they're, they're really cool. It's just they don't get out and play it as much as they should. You know, right? Yeah, I just moved in the last. A uh, decade, basically, I moved three times, and in moving three times, I, I, you know, every, I, you know, every time I had to pack my books up again or pack records up again or any any of that kind of media, I was always like everything. I wasn't quite. It wasn't quite a Marie Kondo situation, but I was definitely <laughs> like, am I really ever going to read this again, or do I really identify with this so bad that I'm going to put it in a box and take it with me again? You know? So I did a pretty good job of like, you know, shedding a lot of fat in terms of that kind of stuff. And now that we're in the place we're in now, I've, 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 gotten comfortable with the idea that if i get a new book i've got to get rid of a book if i get well, another record i've got to get rid of a record well, so i'm trying right. to just maintain at this point because it's yeah it's, it's kind of plenty <laughs> between my wife and i it's kind of plenty well just <laughs> imagine adding to that having been the owner operator partner in a bookstore for 10 years so that's just insane I love the idea, though. I mean, I've got a as somebody who loves books. I mean, I love books more than I love vinyl records. And and I I would I you know the idea of running a bookstore, especially the kind of bookstore you ran, would be fantastic. And maybe we will get to that, and we'll talk a bit about <laughs> your bookstore days as well. But I want people to know right off the top that you know we're primarily here to sort of get into you know the the nooks and crannies of of your really about your philosophy and your process behind all these different things you've done. And the, the thing that you have going on right now is this new documentary film that you made about a really ultimately it's, it's about a whole culture you were a part of. Uh, I love the way the movie creates all this context because it's, it's that to me, that's like, it's, it's incredibly important to, to the event itself. You know what I mean? When you actually are telling us about what you, what you did with this event, it's, it, it, 
it, it, it's it's a very rich story because of the fact that that I feel like I understand pretty intimately at this point what was going on with the scene in L.A. in the early 80s and how that got how that grew and changed and and how you grew and changed along with it. But why don't you tell us just uh, just, you know, give me the, your elevator pitch for what this movie's all about. Well, that's really cool because I mean, what you just <laughs> said is, is meaningful because, you know, for me, it wasn't just about these four shows or five shows, however you want to look at it. But so the short version is it's, the film's called Desolation Center. It was, uh, the idea was that it was going to be a nomadic kind of like underground music club where we would put on gigs and wherever we could, you know, rehearsal uh-huh. space, a warehouse, wherever. And then at some point it turned into this concept of, of taking these, you know, punk rock, industrial culture, underground people out to the middle of the Mojave Desert. Yeah, <laughs> that was the really that was the best part. Like that was where you really took it all. Like, you really jumped right out of the box. I think at that point, <laughs> I kind of took everything up a notch in, in terms of like the intensity of the experience. Ended up working with some really great musicians and and other kinds of artists, and uh, ended up doing three shows in the desert. One on a boat going around the harbor in San Pedro, and the the people that we did the shows with were. The Minutemen, the Meat Puppets. It was the first West Coast show of Sonic Youth, and it was out in the middle of the Mojave Desert. And Ein Schertz and Neubauten, which a lot of people can't pronounce, including me, but uh, they're a German group that were pl- at that time playing like power tools and, and, and setting off Molotov cocktails. And then right. another element of, of it was survival research laboratories, who are best known as these like robotic performance art guys. But they couldn't bring all the robots down, as it turned out. So they ended up <laughs> explosives, and 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 they were basically the opening act for Einstein's and Neubauten and blowing up refrigerators. And, and um, it, it actually worked. It all tied in sort of especially. <laughs> and then a little bit of the film is also about how these very small scale bootstrap things that we did led to other things like Burning Man, Lollapalooza, and and Coachella in different ways. So you know, we could trace some of that story as well. But for instance, like survival research laboratories, a lot of the people that learned how to make machine art and and do things with fire and and, and things like that ended up early Burning Man people. So there's all these like that. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, one thing I think was uh, really rad about about the documentary and that really made it feel really timely and in, in the best possible way was in the earlier part of the film, again, where you just sort of take us into, you know, a lot of rad footage of L.A. in the 80s, a lot of cool like imagery of like the clubs that were happening then and the people who were performing then. You even interview other folks who I'm sure you knew from that time, right. uh, you know, in present, you know, you're interviewing them today and they're looking back and saying, this is what it was like. Blah, blah, blah. And one of the things I thought was interesting about it was the diversity of the of the scene and the sort of nonchalant diversity. It, it was like it seemed from what the documentary showed that it was just a thing where all these people kind of came together and nobody asked any questions because 
like you're playing music and I'm making art and you're a performer and, and uh, you're organizing all this and we're just all here and we love it. And so we're just going to do it. And no one's going to wonder about whether girls are allowed or black people are allowed or fat people are allowed or, you know, gay people are allowed. It's just like everybody gets to be here and, you know, not, not every revolution is, you know, inclusive. You know what I mean? The, the black Panthers were notoriously sexist. Not every <laughs> art scene is inclusive. You know, the, the beat generation was notoriously sexist. You know, but, but the scene there seems like it really was this, this really incredibly inclusive place. And I think it's, it's, it shows in the quality of all these ideas that come out that, you know, that ultimately there are these ideas that, that do get outside the box and do think of new ways of doing things. Also really glad that you, you know, you, you brought that up and and that that came through. And I mean, I I think that it's not to say that everybody was all completely, you know, woke or all that. It was more just like, we're a bunch of weird kids that nobody in your high school liked. And then, you know, all of a sudden we got to hang out together and create things. And and so therefore you had some really kind of interesting, intense personalities and people that had all kinds of interests. And then there was also kind of like this older generation for me anyway, that were maybe people in their late twenties, but you know, the <laughs> kind of like the oh, elders, okay, so <laughs> that, that's what, you know, a captain B fart is about or whatever. You just start learning oh, all yeah. kind of earlier kind of eccentric, cool people from the people that we were hanging out with. And, but I think of somebody like Sean Delier because I mean, he was always there, but super androgynous and, and, you know, gender bending black guy that political, but, you know, until I really interviewed Chandi, I mean, I, I'd known him all these years. I didn't realize how deep he actually was, you know, and how much was going on in his head. Cause a lot of times it'd just be people you'd see at a club, you like, Hey, what's up? You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, so that was a really cool experience for me, but I do think that that was just true of LA. Cause L.A. was already kind of a diverse place. Like you had a lot of Latino people. Sure. You had African-American people. You know, you had a lot of Asian people. So out of all of those people, they all kind of got it at the same time from what was going on on the radio and started coming into the, you know, Hollywood and places like that. And so we were all kind of bumping up against each other, you know, in a good way. I think it's interesting, too, how the the, the premise is really set up to be such a a, a not just a, an assimilation of people, but also a, a reconciling of these incredible contrasts in the sense that you're taking essentially people from the city that are used to communing if they do at all in very small spaces in the city, punk clubs, you know, basement, you know, situations, all that kind of stuff that we all, we all kind of grew up with. I love the idea that the, all of this just gets shot out of a cannon into this expanse, right? And, and, and instead of, being in sort of the 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 underbelly of of the city, now all of a sudden there's limitless space. You can, you you feel like a, you know a part of the planet. You you know you're reconciling yourself with the elements and the earth, while bringing that idiom and that sort of ideology and all the methodologies with you to then sort of explode it in that space in the, in the Mojave Desert. I just I find that part of it alone, prior to, you know. I mean, obviously, this is the predecessor for all these other, you know, sort of culture festivals. But I, I take issue with sort of culture festival, right, or even just culture in general. But, 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 but right. But, but I guess the idea just being that any gathering of people that agree on anything is the scariest thing in the world to me. Let me tell you, no, but uh, no, but but it's it's the kind of thing where 
that was, and I hate to sort of romance these kind of things, right? In the same way that Woodstock has been and other things, right? Where, the, you know, it, it, there's, there's all sides to it, but it was really the last of the unmediated experiences. If that were to happen now in any way, it would never happen the same way. It would never feel the same way because everybody was jumping, you know, seemingly right into this unknown, like willing to take a trip, get on a bus and go to the, sort of the unknown. And there's no, there's no real safety. There's no, you know, contact. There's no, you know, living for the gram and like vanity wrapped up in it, right? It's just this unmediated sort of thing that now, you know, can't happen. And I hate to feel like I'm that grumpy sort of older guy now that's like, well, that, you know, back in my day. But I mean, it really is just by the shape of technology and culture and all things, something that that actually cannot ever happen again. Well, let me say first off that I do think that despite all that, I'm really, really glad people brought cameras. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm glad that, people, you know, some people videotaped it. There's people that brought their Sony Walkman. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't right, have been able to make right. a film out of it. But the immediacy, right? In, yeah, yeah. In our memories. But I do think you're right that everybody having a camera and everybody having access to this, you know, being able to stream it out there and everything is does change experience for sure. And I don't know what, you know, kind of something like this would be. We have talked about, particularly my friend Mariska and I, who and she was part of the original shows as well. She was a co-producer on the film and she took a lot of the photos. We're talking about doing it. You know, it just... It won't, I don't want to say it'll be the same because we're all that many more decades older and, you know, we'd like to have some of the same outlaw spirit, you know, but I think we're going to have to make some decisions about like if we do do that, like what would you do with people's phones and can you, you know, make it so that everybody isn't just standing there, you know, yep. like that, which I find super annoying, yeah. you know, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I do think there are there were things about it where you really could get lost back then and there was no GPS and, and you were genuinely like in a life-threatening situation just just from the elements you know but I mean, <laughs> we we also i think you know like there's like a lineage to it even in the sense of like just you know bruce leisher from savage republic was really the one that had this idea i mean he knew the dry lake bed and 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 he took me out there where we did our first show one of his t his teachers at ucla in the art department was chris burden who did all kinds of crazy art things where he, right. you know, was crucified to a VW and stuff like that. And I think the idea that we weren't going to tell people where they were going, they were just going to get on a school bus and it would end up in the middle of the desert was kind of in the spirit of all that, you know, that, that uh, there was an element of risk and like trust and things like that too. Unmediated spontaneity as, as it were. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost a, a pastime, but well, the thing too, is that I know that I mean, it's no secret. People talk about it, right? Like how much, uh, you know, hallucinogenics and everything were sort of a part of this experience. And, and, you know, it's like, I, I, when I was young, you know, I, I would do a lot of those kind of things that I would never do now, but not because I have some new moral fabric. It's because I can't, right. it's because I can't, I can't get away, man. You know, like, like I wouldn't have experienced anything as a teenager that was enlightenment as I saw it. Had I known that I couldn't fully disappear for a day even maybe two days where people wouldn't get freaked out. Now it's like if you're gone for 10 minutes, you know, people are going to wonder where are you and, and get worried or whatever. If, if I, right. you know, so if you're going to have like a, a, a massive sort of a collection of people dipping into sort of the, the psychedelic realm and otherwise, I, I feel like 
I don't know, it's being tethered to, you know, reality as a, or non-reality, however you look at it, you know, it, it seems like, yeah, that there are a lot of interesting sort of differences and challenges. And yeah, if you were to reapproach it, I mean, you know, if you were to do it again, it's like, well, it's the same spirit, but like, uh, you know, my, I've got my, my Yeti cooler, you know, I've got. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that was because, you know, a lot of people that went to these things were not experienced outdoors people, yeah. you know, they're, they're <laughs> being out late and, you know, maybe getting from, you know, Hollywood to downtown LA and back and, you know, right. be able to drive with a few beers, but not like, you know, actually dealing with the whole outdoor situation. And that's why we didn't have the whole camping out. I mean, a few people did get there early and, 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 and leave later, but, but it's funny. Yeah. The only place you really cut off from all that nowadays is a national park, you know, yeah. where they still don't have, uh, cell service and stuff like that which is it's always kind of a nice feeling where you're like yeah i absolutely can't communicate <laughs> you know for me yeah. I, I don't know maybe if i was a digital native i, w- I would miss it or something but yeah know. yeah it's something you know I, I don't really think about it that much until when my usually in the springtime for my wife's birthday we go down to the Gulf Coast. So we go down to like, basically it's like the closest beach to Nashville. You just drive south until you hit the ocean, right? And and when we're down there, just because it's, it's, it's I mean, it's really a pain in the butt to have a phone out at the beach with you because where do you leave it when you want to go in the water? It's going to get hot if you head out in the sun and all this stuff. So it's actually just easier to leave it inside and not deal with it. But the, the, upst- the upshot of that is that I spend most of every day just reading a book or staring at the ocean or taking a nap, you know, and at the end of doing that for like a week, you really do know that you can tell there's a difference. You can tell that there's a, you're, you're sort of more aware of what's happening around you because you're not, you're, you're, you're significantly less distracted than you are when when it's just constantly there for you to to indulge in all this technology. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> all true. I'm just saying. That. <laughs> yeah. of, you know, digitally releasing a film, like right now, I'm in, in, really in the midst of all that sort of anxiety of like even like doing this with you guys. I'm like, I have to be there at, right to get on the Skype. But now it feels really natural, and it's yeah. like no big deal, but. It, there's a certain amount of like uh, just constantly being in touch and making sure things go right and stuff. It's yeah, it's like production. But I, I I think that there it is a good feeling when you can just be with a group of people or whatever, and it's just you're the that's it. That's your world. That's your reality. You know. And the desert. I mean, is you know, I I think part of my idea was that I felt like the desert was almost like another planet. You know, it just felt so like austere and things like that. So I felt like certain aspects of, of psychedelia in in the music lent themselves to that sort of space yeah. and, and things like that. So but I mean, it could be anywhere. You know, I really don't I don't want to say like, oh, this is about the California desert, because really, I mean, there's all kinds of strange environments. Right. People do shows in volcanoes and, you know, whatever. Right. One of the things that I liked about about the documentary, there was a quote from you in the documentary. First of all, too, I also really liked the way that I felt that, you know, you sort of were not really the subject, but you were like the protagonist in a way of the documentary. But I felt 
it didn't it didn't bother me in the way it does a lot of times when I when there, it feels like the director is is overtly putting themselves in the film and things like that. To me, it felt it felt really natural when you were on the screen and obviously necessary because you're the one, you know, to sort of lead us through this story. But one thing that you said really toward the beginning, almost like the introduction of the movie, was you talked about the idea that that these early experiences that you had in the L.A. scene with all these artists and all these musicians and stuff, that you began to think about, you know, producing these shows as an art form in and of itself, you know? So could you talk a little bit about that? Like, how did you start to see that as, like, something more than just administrative and actually see it as, like, creating this, you know, curate, curating this, you know, expression. Yeah. Again, thank you, you know, for, 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 for getting all that. And it, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it's pretty clear. I mean, it's a really yeah. well done, man. I, I'm not, I don't have, I'm not bringing particular insights to this. I think that's all right there in the movie for everybody right. to see. In, in that there was one, one show and one person that I talked about that I think was an example of it, which was Throbbing Gristle. Oh, right. Yeah, um, they were uh, for the people that, you know, have not are not familiar with them. I mean, they were a very kind of uh, taboo breaking, noisy, intense group from England, but purely right. electronic. They weren't really, you know, they were punk in every way, but, you know, using Kraftwerk's instruments or, or whatever. And right. yeah, so we just lost and Genesis Peoritz just passed away not too long ago. Yeah. And so and there was a guy that I met who became a good friend, who actually went to, to, I think, most of the shows, maybe all of the ones that are in the film, named Michael Shepard. And he was the first person to bring Throbbing Gristle to Los Angeles. And he did a show up in San Francisco, too. And he would he did all kinds of sort of cool acts, but it was also just, it was something about the way they presented themselves in this place that was the Culver City Veterans Auditorium, where you could have, you know, you could have had seen any number of bands there, but they would have been like your local rock bands or whatever, you know. And so seeing them there just felt like this is so wrong, but it's so right, you know. <laughs> um, and so then I met Michael just, you know, record shopping somewhere. And, and I was like, wow, how did you do that? How did you get them to play in the cover city? You know, and he started telling me all this stuff. And then he kind of took me around and showed me how to sell tickets at the record stores and, and get the cash in order to pay for the things you had to pay for. And so I just, again, like there was just certain people, like another person that was in the film, Johanna Went, who was a performance artist, did these really crazy shows that, you know, with weird costumes and giant, you know, phalluses and a severed pig's head and all this stuff. But it was always like opening for a band, like the Minutemen or something, you know. So uh -huh. it was like I just started to see that there was more than one way to present things and, and more than one way to sort of combine things. And so I started, I don't know, I just started feeling like this whole club thing, because I, in high school, I started going up to see bands at clubs and, and in LA, it was usually the Sunset Strip. It just started to feel like you could only go so far within that environment. So right. it's partly about the music and partly about trying to change the setting I don't know why I took it on myself, but I guess I, I'm just not, I never really felt like the world needed my band. You know what I mean? It was more like, what could I do that would, that would contribute to this whole scene? And back then there was a lot of really good zines being published that were, you know, really artistic. There was great photography. 
you know, great design of the record cover. So everything just felt like somebody was doing something with this music, but it wasn't really just all about, you know, rock and roll, basically. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, why not make the promoting part of it as creative as, as the rest of what was going on? Yeah, I love that, man. So there's also this tendency I see where you're you're very much sort of a, a cultivator of disparate elements, right? It's I think that there's some people that have a particular gift, right? I don't know if you can cook, maybe not, I don't know, but it just seems <laughs> getting better. Yeah, right. But it, you know, I think that there's people that have that gift and when you start to really focus that sort of your your nature in that way on a film project like this, I feel like that that's got to be sort of the strength that you have to have when you're dealing with the assembly essentially of archival film and photography and this big broad story with so many sort of players and and important figures to sort of you know touch on in whatever way you feel like will lend to this larger complexion and there's a lot of you know influential people that came from all of this that that are still affecting uh, culture in a, in a very intense way now but you had this ability, I think, to put this together in a way that I think is, it's kind of confounding to me. I mean, I, I'm a filmmaker also. And if I'm, if I'm dealing with just, you know, a bunch of footage alone, not necessarily contending with archives and, you know, trying to get the transcriptions and like whatever, all the things that you need to do from a technical sort of filmmaking standpoint to be able to organize a story in the idiom that is now the feature length documentary which, by the way, I have a follow-up question about that in terms of a sort of episodic style, right? But anyway, but you know, tell me, tell us a little bit about like sort of your your process and how perhaps like the synthesis of a lot of different ingredients was either a challenge or actually came quite naturally, or that you almost uh, wanted to jump off a bridge, or you know, how did that go for you? Well, <laughs> some or all of the above, yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you would have asked me, but I, I do think that like. I've, I had done a, a lot of sort of different but related things before I started on the film. So our, you know, Amok Books was conceived of by, and not just me, but, you know, it was a group of sort of a collective as a Dada collage that was also a book catalog, you know? So mm -hmm. that's really like a, a fucked up thing to take on. But at the same time, it was the only way we could really express what we wanted and also have something practical. Like here's these cool, weird books, you know? So I was used to sort of archival things and scanning things in and, and all that. Produced a, a, a documentary that my friend uh, John Reese did uh, about rave culture and sort of the that scene in the, in, in the late 90s. I think that I was really lucky to work with some people that had a ton of experience with this kind of stuff. I mean, my editor, Tyler Hobby, he made, a, he's also a documentary filmmaker and when I saw the film that he made about this artist, sound artist uh, guy, Tony Conrad, I was like, God, I could just get Tyler to do this. But Tyler had also done like a, a number of music docs by that time. You know, he edited The Devil and Daniel Johnston and stuff like that. Oh, wow. So talk about archives. So, <laughs> like, like through Tyler, I met a lot of really interesting people through John, who came back as a consulting producer. You know, I, I met people and also put in a lot of time working in TV, which sounds like kind of the opposite, but my particular job a lot of the time was development. So that meant that they gave you like no money and you just had to somehow like make a little tape that would look like the show you were trying to sell. And that was a good discipline for me because a lot of times I was like a one-man band filming, which I didn't want to do that for, for this, but it did 
I did learn sort of very low budget production techniques and I met, you know, really talented. One of the one of the DPs, Sandra, was somebody that, you know, we we did a, a reality sizzle reel together before that and stuff. So I think I, I spent a lot of time kind of doing related things. And then I also maybe was because I was in the middle of this particular story, it made me know the right questions to ask people and, mm-hmm. and the right kind of what, what did I want to get out of them and things like that. So not to say that sometimes, you know, it didn't always, you know, if you hadn't seen somebody in 35 years, like with Blixa Bargeld, could have gone any number of ways, mm-hmm. you know, but it ended up, I, I thought he, he had a lot of really great insights, but at the beginning, it was a little bit like, I don't remember you, and uh, <laughs> I don't even remember how I got to the desert, you know, those, <laughs> well, you know, I wasn't even there, man. <laughs> That's awesome. You had a, you had a follow up question, Brian. Well, I guess I was just curious about you know I feel like that there's there is sort of this dilemma now where you know this sort of idea of egg all eggs in one basket, right? I'm going to make this one feature length thing, right? Versus maybe something that's you know split up and you know we're in the age now where people will binge a ten hour documentary in one weekend, you know, as much as we have the attention spans of goldfish now and we're all becoming like sort of idiots, we're also becoming highly tolerant to just long, long form binging and, and all that. So I guess I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like you would have had the challenge of just, I've got so much material here that and so many disparate storylines that I could go down and explore and extrapolate out. And you have, I'm sure you had a pretty good challenge of trying to sort of curtail or contain that or get to the most essential things. And so sometimes the, the, the constraint, you know, air quotes of say a, a single assertion of a film is a good thing. Like wh- whatever it is, it's got to fit in this, in this sort of mold versus, you know, I guess right. I'm just curious if you were tempted at any point or, you know, compelled to consider in some way, like another avenue of, of kind of breaking it up or, or doing it in a different format. I never really did. I think I just, I do love the like feature length doc and I wanted to make one, you know, so for me, yeah. it was like, I'm going to bring it in at 90 minutes, you know, and and I'm going to try to tell this whole story. And and that's where it was helpful to be bouncing it off of Tyler, because, you know, he he could sort of he was brutal. You know, he's just like, I don't care that that you love that person and they're your friend or yeah. they're out. <laughs> oh, it's kind of, oh, shit. All right. <laughs> yeah. You got to have somebody but, like but, that around in the interest of, of storytelling, you know. And uh, so so we worked well together, I think. And then as far as making it episodic, I think it was more like I realized that like some of these interviews, like with Mark Pauline, I mean, I got so much of his story from up to the moment where he did that desert show. It's almost like this archive of underground West Coast in particular culture, you know, but also, I mean, Berlin people. And, you know, so there I do think there, there was this idea maybe that I could at some point turn it into something where, you know, people could just experience all the things that led up to it and, and get to know these people in a more in-depth way. But there just hasn't really been time to, to do all that. I mean, you know, I, I think, but as far as making it episodic, I kind of, one idea that I had was that, you know, it's almost like this is a particular point in time in a place, you know, from 83 to 86 or whatever. And that there are other places and, and points of time and other, like where did, Buto start in Japan and, and when did it end or whatever, you know what I mean? Or right. uh, just all kinds of different, that could be, that was what I thought maybe it could be a kind of a template for 
talking about underground culture in different places, you know. I think the word underground culture is interesting. And I think one of the things that I that I admired about you when I saw the movie was the fact that, you know, you, you know, you grew up in L.A. So that was just by default. You were in L.A. in the early 80s when like, you know, you show footage and it's like, you know, just kind of a wasteland downtown and things like this. Not that dissimilar to what was going on in New York. Not not quite as apocalyptic as right. what we see in like, you know, Basquiat documentaries, you know, but 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 rather like that and and a place that was sort of ripe for artists and musicians and stuff to sort of take over spaces and reimagine culture and all this kind of stuff. But then shortly, I guess it was, was it right after you did the the first concert in the desert, you went to Berlin? Is that how it was? Yeah, pretty much. Well, what I did was I did this one desert show with, with Savage Republic and the Minutemen. And then I wasn't really sure what I was going to do next. So uh-huh. I, I like quit my job and I I was backpacking in Europe with a URL pass, you know, and then uh-huh. I ended up in Berlin. And when I got there, I was like, wow, this is this is awesome. I want to stay here, but I couldn't really figure out, right. You know what the hell I was doing, but I met a lot of really interesting people. You know, I had a a few, like you should, you know, talk to this person or that people let me couch surf and things like that. So I just kind of fell into that scene and that was, yeah, it was super different than LA, but it, you know, there was something really inspiring about all these, you know, artists and people, people, you know, back then in Germany, it was surrounded by, I didn't really realize until I got there, I thought there was like a wall, like when we drive down to Mexico, but it's actually the wall surrounded the whole place. And yeah. so they, they had a hard time getting people to live there. So if you didn't want to be in the army, you didn't want to be drafted. I mean, it wasn't like they had the Vietnam War, but they, they, everybody was supposed to go in the army. If you lived in Berlin, you're okay. <laughs> you, know, you could just get out of the whole thing. So it kind of attracted all kinds of alternative people. And, and Yeah, see, that's rad. And it's it's yeah. interesting to me because like, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, let's say, you know, Berlin has become like the new Portland or something, right? Like everybody's wanted to go to Berlin. It was cheap. There was all creative people there. All these artists were moving there and living there. There's a bunch of bands I know of that moved there and there's, they're still based in Berlin now. So, and now it's probably a place that's much more harder to find that underground scene in, to find that cheap place to live in and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like like there's something so important about like the living in these places where there's just nothing going on and and no reason to stay. And then you 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 can like project all this imagination onto it. You know what I'm saying? Where when you live in a place that's, you know, everybody wants to be there and there's plenty of things to do and you know and all these things are happening and and you can't be poor and spend your time making art there because it's too expensive to be there you know it chokes that out you know what i mean and i don't know if i have a question exactly quality of life yeah but i really yeah yeah. (laughs) quality of life yeah yeah when when you have to sort of create quality of life it's better or not, or the not paying of rent or whatever is really important because, like, I mean, not the musical, but the idea <laughs> that you have time to, you know, actually do creative stuff or just screw up and do things that don't make any sense. And oh, I tried that, you know, and that's what LA felt like back then. If you were willing to sort of get away from the more, you know, expensive, nice parts of town, you could you could live cheap. And so that's. You know, uh, again, like you're talking about New York in the 70s, you know, I mean, I, I one of the things that I one of my paid gigs was researching that whole time period for somebody that wanted to make a film. And I really learned about how like, yeah, that whatever the East Village, Lower East Side 
wasn't like a place people wanted to be. You know? right. And I think that that now you look back on it, you're like, wow, so much creativity, whatever. But a lot of that is is just a few people that are really determined. Yeah, to, the to front make the frontier, happen. as it were, back then. You know, yeah. Even even when I lived in New York in the mid '90s, you know, nobody went to Williamsburg or whatever. You know. Very few people oh, yeah. had the sort of nerve to kind of be there. And the ones that there were kind of like, ooh, you live in Williamsburg. You know, every era has that whole thing. I mean, I don't know what the next frontier is. It's probably somewhere in the middle of the country. It's going to be somewhere where there's lots Detroit. of. Detroit. I guess maybe it's Detroit over already. I don't know. But yeah. I, I liked going there. I went there to, to Screen <laughs> Desolation Center and been there a few different times. And I still think that has an element of that. But, it, you know, it's, it's hard. Right. I, don't, I would move there. I'm from Detroit originally, and and so I get up there. I mean, I was just up there in at Christmas time, you know. So I think Detroit is Detroit's very weird, man, because it's like you know. I mean, Detroit crashed about as hard as a place can crash. It's very few cities actually totally go bankrupt like the way Detroit did, you know. And when you go to Detroit now, you still see just blocks and blocks of empty buildings and all this kind of stuff. But you also see all these other things where you know where Detroit didn't sort of make this leap like all these other cities made it. It's it's now it, when it's coming back all of a sudden it's like, you know, abandoned buildings and artisanal milkshakes. Yeah. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> abandoned buildings and, you know, this kind of thing. So I think it's I think there's interesting <laughs> things happening there. And and my my nephew lives in Detroit and he's there, you know, part of the electronic music scene in Detroit right now. And and there's there's some there's some really cool things that seem to be happening. But but I really don't have a grasp on like you know, is the rent still right. affordable or what, what, like what's going on? Like we're, the quality yeah, I mean, of life. Autonomous I mean, zones. I just know from, you know, the, uh, John yeah, Locke, exactly. who's in the film, you know, who, who started the, or one of the people that started the Cacophony Society and Burning Man, you know, he bought a house in Detroit for like $10,000, you know, wow. just because he's like, I, <laughs> how could I not do that? You know, yeah. and uh, so, but that was a few years back. I, I'm sure everything's, sure. I don't know, the whole world is going to be different when we all come out of, you know, yeah, we have no idea yet. Yeah, right. Hey, well, you know, I do think that uh, there's always that. Now there's the whole gentrification thing too. So you don't want to be like just the foot soldiers of that either. You know. So. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know how to avoid it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a funny thing, but I I, I read about it all the time, and I hear people talk about it all the time. But it's like, of course, the creative class is going to be the group of people that are willing to put up with all the things other people aren't because of the fact that that economic trade-off of I can live here cheap and I can afford to paint, you know, or I can live here cheap and I can afford to run my band, you know, or whatever it is, you know, they're, they're always going to be willing to do that. And the great value of that creative work is that it really does make something in the middle of nothing that everyone else wants to be a part of until they price the artists out again and then they right. have to move to Williamsburg. Yeah. You know? It all keeps happening. Hey, I was, I was going to say also, you know, how is your Stuart, your, your reconciliation with the past, right. In terms of nostalgia, right. Like i at least from my experience, I feel embattled by that sometimes because I want to honor things of the past, but at the same time, I feel like if I go too deep, then I'm living in the past or I'm not, able to make a, a turn enough to sort of get get away from it and it's hard not to 
romance things, you know, I'm glad you have a, I forget the fellow's name you mentioned, but the guy that's like, I don't give a shit about this person or that, like, just because you like this doesn't mean that anybody else is going to care about this in the film. At least you had like some people to sort of govern maybe your personal sensibilities, but just in a broader sense as a human being and you're, 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 it takes a hell of a long time to make a film like what you've made. And it's a huge investment. And whenever you're doing that, I mean, ultimately any filmmaker is dealing in the past because that's the nature of the medium. You're capturing something and reflecting it. But in your case, right, like it's really, you know, trying to sort of uh, hold up this kind of harbinger and this this very special thing. How did you reconcile the, the sort of the nostalgia versus sort of remaining kind of functionally not attached at the same time? Well, I think I felt like I don't want it to be nostalgia. Yeah. And, and I also felt like, you know, on a personal kind of like psychic level, I got a lot of reward out of getting to back into this period of my life and and meeting people that were important then or that were involved and getting this sort of 360 degree view of what we were all doing and then seeing these images that I didn't know were out there. So it was continually kind of inspiring. Like, and so I just, I didn't want it. And this is, I mean, when I was a kid in the sixties, you know, there was Woodstock, right. And, And I always felt like we were kind of like, the lame 70s people that were in the shadow of all that. So we had the Eagles instead of, you know, Jimi Hendrix or whatever. And so I really didn't want to have that holier than thou kind of superior attitude with this. And so what I kind of thought would make sense is to just tell the story in somewhat of an unvarnished way, not get too pretentious with it and, and let the things speak for themselves. And so that was definitely a conscious decision and to be kind of, you know, it's kind of an in-between period, you know? It's not like 1977, 78 punk. It's not like the indie, you know, boom that happened afterward. But what I liked about it is that it was, everybody was kind of like doing things for the right reasons and no one was really expecting to make any big financial, you know, return out of it at that time or anything. So, you know, in a way, I was able to present this sort of idealistic thing and be true to that, you know? So I guess, you know, you can't, I mean, there's kind of like, I know when I first got into punk, I was like, well, there's this thing called punk rock and it happened in the 60s. And I have to learn about the seeds and the question mark and the Mysterians and, you know, 13th floor elevators. So, you know, there's always that like digging into whatever came before. And so I don't feel too bad in the sense of like, yeah, not everybody's going to have been that generation. And, and, And so when people see it and they're in their 20s and they get something out of it, to me, that's really rewarding. I mean, that's, you know, what I would hope. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, like I said, when we first started talking, you know, I think one of the things I really liked about the documentary was, I mean, it was full of names and 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 people and bands and everything else that I was aware of, but it was also full of stuff that I didn't know about, you know, obscure things that I'm glad I know about now, and I'm glad that I have a better understanding of all that stuff, and frankly, stuff makes more sense to me now, you know, I really, I really... Uh, especially like there's there's a lot of things like at one point you talk about the concert what was it it was it black flag and the minutemen opening up for the ramones right? right and all that and like and like i always think about like this weird separation between east coast punks and west coast punks you know what i mean and maybe that's something that happens eventually but 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 to see the, that that kind of a concert happening and, and that hilarious radio announcement that they make uh that was that's really hilarious and that was i thought that was really interesting too because 
because you know that was another thing about the documentary is just because of the nature of the subject you are you know once again talking about technology you're getting into this thing where you're seeing all this nuts and bolts of how people you know were creative about promoting their shows back before they could just invite people on facebook right yeah i mean if you think about it like what's more basic than a radio ad for a concert right <laughs> yeah. on a rock station but they managed to make it into this completely subversive, you know, fuck you to the LAPD right. way before NWA. That was amazing. And I didn't even, back then it was kind of like, yeah, of course Black Flag's going to do that. You know, fuck that. But, you know, now I look at him like, that's genius, you know, and, yeah. and that that was out on the airwaves and not censored. It's still amazing, you know, and no wonder they showed up, you know, with in force with, with the riot squad at, at that gig, you know, right. and, and many other ones. But, that's what's been interesting, you know, living through the last few weeks, you know, is just, you know, people kind of wrapping their head around, well, you know, what is this whole police brutality thing and, and what, why, why does all this violence happen around them? <laughs> what can we do about that? And, and, yeah. and, and it was a, an element of the film, too, which we got used to it, you know, as white, you know, whatever privileged and in many cases suburban kids. But a lot of people weren't, you know, which we also point out in the film. But also it's like you kind of start to see your local police force in a very different light, you know, when you're in those situations, you know. Yeah, well, the LAPD, of course, is notorious. And it's interesting to see, you know, that that even back then they were like that, you know, and then Rodney King, they're like that. And now yeah. they're still like that. You know what right. I mean? Exactly. You know, yeah. so it's it's it's, you know, I mean, it, it's it's time for us to all come to grips with this problem. You know what I mean? Because it's it's perennial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a great book called City of Courts that I read. You know, I forget when it came out. Sometime in, I think in the 90s, and it talks about how the LAPD used you know Vietnam strategic Hamlet, you know, containment occupation type strategies in South Central. And, and pretty much everywhere else, you know, but that whole idea that, that they're an occupying force, you know, it sounds kind of overblown, but the fact is, that's what they were doing. That was their manual, you know, and, and I think that that has to that has to change now, you know, somehow. Yeah, Joe, yeah. It's, Joe, I was uh, I noticed uh, the other day, Joe, I don't know if you know this, but I follow you on social media. Oh, great. It's, it's great. I'll look, I'll, maybe I'll follow you back. Brian. Thanks. Yeah, think about it. <laughs> Just think about it. You can't even fucking see me. So, uh, <laughs> no, but uh, the, uh, you know, this is, uh, it's like drug war. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. you want to talk about like the time of, of you know, Desolation, Desolation Center and all that. I mean, that was the, the sort of, that sort of dirtiest part of the Reagan era. So if you got this kind of parallel society of, of, you know, this supposed altruism based in consumption was really perfectly married at that time. Like society and things were getting really, you know, pretty, pretty fake and pretty veneered. And then that was sort of like the, the final strains, I think, of, of where like basically they just launched the drug war in such a way that it became like, OK, well, now we're, we're going to have we're going to have to have militarized police because and this is a perfect system. Oh, wait, we can also. Oh, why don't we look towards privatizing prisons along the way? And then, wait, oh, wait a minute! Like this is actually an ecosystem that works perfectly because we can kind of get them going in and get them going out. It's like being an OBGYN and a funeral director at the same time. Right. Yeah. And then you also have the, you know, the just the, you know, the capacity for creating a labor force out of people incarcerated, and and now all of a sudden we're back in the antebellum South throughout the whole country. Yeah. 
Yeah. So so anyway, did you ever meet D Boone? I did. <laughs> sorry, I that mean, was just yeah. <laughs> sorry, that was <laughs> Yeah, while well, 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 we're getting political, right? Yeah. I mean D Boone was somebody out of all I'd say many of the people in the film I knew, but D Boone was somebody that I really was friends with and and you know, like it from the beginning kind of was down for whatever we wanted to do. I mean, we put on some small desolation center shows with the Minutemen, but you know, w- when I said, Hey, you want to play out in the middle of the desert? Sure. Yeah. You know, like no questions asked and just to, yeah. I mean, I don't want to like, you know, do some kind of like, you know, gee, there'll never be another one like that, but it's really true. He's just an amazing guy. Re- so smart and, you know, could really play his instrument, but like super down to earth and, and always aware, you know, just like, when when I see somebody like that that came out of a really kind of blue collar, you know, background and just always attuned to art, you know, always bringing it in somehow or other in, 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 in whether he was painting, drawing, lyrics, music, you know, just so cool. And and still, you know, could could still do construction during the day, you know, or whatever. Yeah, that's rad. I think one thing I think is, is interesting about the, you know, the the whole DIY thing to me, a lot of it is has to do with education. A lot of it has to do with access to money. You know, a lot of it has to do with a lot of it has to do with that blue collar culture that you're mentioning right now. And, and I think that there's something that's so, I mean, it's almost like it's, there's such a, such an extra presence to things that are done by a collective of people who are just putting together what they've got in the most creative way they can possibly do it. And they're spending all the sweat equity they can possibly spend to make it as special as possible. And you can just tell the difference when you're at a concert like that or an art event like that or an exhibition like that or something versus when you go to the the other version where it's like, no, it's all well-funded, professional, <laughs> da, 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 da. And sometimes yeah. those things can also be rewarding and interesting, and, and uh, they have a place. But there's there's a huge difference between those two things. And and I don't know that you can always quantify what what that other, what that, that intangible thing is. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that some of it is just, you know, bringing your experience to it also and and you know if your experience is only art school you know then that's you don't have a lot to bring to the to the subject let's say Mm -hmm. but you know there's other people that kind of have come up through all kinds of situations and and, you know they're gonna have very different perspectives but yeah i i I think that that kind of like work ethic was was something that black flag and the minutemen had right that was a different thing than sort of the uk punk thing you know where it's like <laughs> you know i mean i think a lot of people you know feel like oh musicians should just be like you know drinking and hanging out and whatever i mean that's all true but you know <laughs> but, i mean what i saw was guys who get up in the morning and, and you know really like start making flyers or you know or they or black flag would be rehearsing four hours a day you know six or seven days a week you know and so I, I think that that's something that maybe that's a little secret that people should tell artists when they're starting out, like hard work is really important, you know, and, and it will actually make a difference, you know, and it, I think it gives you more like a 
sort of a, a basis where you can be a little bit more like, yeah, I don't care if you like this or you don't like it because like, this is my thing and I did it myself, you know, even yeah. a group of people or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. And I, and I think, I think it would possibly keep a lot of other people away from the arts <laughs> because <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who, who are cluttering up the space and they're, they, they don't have that kind of a work ethic. You know what I mean? And they, they're there because they think it's easy and it's not hard work and they don't want to put in that hard work, you know? And then sometimes those people do great stuff too. It just depends. But, but I, I really do think it's, it's important for people to understand that it's like, like you say, it's like, you know, people having talent is, is a, a big part of it, but people having talent and then dedicating themselves to those talents and putting in the time and the effort and sacrificing other things to make room for that in their lives. That's where the art happens. And I think those working class kids, they, they grow up in a world where they see those examples, even if they're not seeing their mom and dad painting every day, they're seeing them put in the hard work. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I just feel like, you know, it's, it, it'd be great if everything was just easy, but unfortunately <laughs> to do something cool, you know, you gotta put the hard work in. I, uh, Brian, that's a, that's a quote. You're going to clip that quote out for the week. Yeah. I'll clip it out. No, I mean, it's an, it's an endless refrain. I mean, like the idea that people, I think a lot of artists overcomplicate, you know, a lot of people make money off of this, right? Like, who the hell doesn't have a master class now or God, like we were me, me, some friends of mine were teasing earlier just about we should make a master class about how to create a master class because then we can just get we can just get rich you know but uh, but ultimately it's it this this idea that there's I saw Tony Williams, the great drummer, you know, wants to do a, a, a drum clinic and people were asking him all these technical questions about how he played and you know what you know. How, somebody asked him, "How did you develop your ride cymbal technique?" And he was, <laughs> he was, he, or no, actually, that's not what happened. Somebody said, "I noticed you were playing like seven over four with your right hand," and you know they were giving all this technical. And he was like, he he kept doing this, but he kept saying like, "Okay, what you're really asking is how did I develop my ride cymbal technique?" So I'll just tell you. He's like, "What I did is I took all of my other drums, except for my ride cymbal. I took every drum cymbals, everything else." And put them in, just put them away. And then I just sat there with my ride cymbal and I just played that for, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day with just the, <laughs> just the ride cymbal. And after I'd done that for a long time, I, I developed my ride cymbal technique, you know? <laughs> yeah. I love those Fela records, by the way. <laughs> He's the, the best. Which, oh, which records? Tony Williams? Was he not the, the, the guy that played on the Fela Cooney oh, no, record? No, no, you're thinking of, uh, oh. oh my God. Why am I not thinking about it? Yeah, he died recently. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Tony Williams was played with Miles Davis when he was like 16 oh. years old. He had to like grow a oh, mustache. Okay. He had to grow a mustache just so he could sneak into the clubs to to play with Miles when he was like 16, but ended up being sort of legend. But uh, but yes. Yeah. So but yeah. But I love all the Afrobeat stuff too. Another another Tony uh, and equally as compelling. But anyway. But yeah. I just I do. Tony think- Allen. Tony Allen. Tony Allen. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry about that. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and the, we're, we're all, we're all, all and the Afro guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it is, it is interesting how people, I think convolute how, how difficult things can be, but it is hard though. Like if you're riding a bike down the road and then somebody just, and you're on a big hill and somebody just drives by, you know, with, you know, they're, they're in a car, they're putting forth no effort and you're just grinding up this hill and, and you can't afford a car. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of a, a you're forced to just reconcile that that work ethic right then and there. And I think that if you've had to if you've had the ability to bypass all those things for fortune or or luck or whatever it is, 
you just you don't get you don't get made of certain things that I think do amount to that intangible you're talking about, Joe. It's like this this point of utter resonance and undeniable authenticity that people just emanate mm. through what they do because they're so you know just completely connected to it. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I also think, you know, that I like what you said earlier, Stuart, about the gentleman who sort of took you under his wing and showed you the ropes of how you actually put a show together and how you promote it and all that stuff. And I was actually thinking about this just the other day. I've got a number of friends who are like, you know, their day job is being an arts educator of one kind or another. And I've never done anything like that, but I've done community art projects where you, you're putting people in a room and you're, you're empowering them to do the creativity. And well, for a lot of people, they've, they've never, been in that situation before so there's an educational pedagogical thing happening in that environment and of course there's always the you know the in the fine arts there's a long tradition going all the way back to the you know medieval times of the master and the apprentice and all this kind of stuff how much of that stuff you know do you feel connected to now i mean are are you going to be somebody who's going to be working with younger people and help finding a way to sort of inform them of all the weird stuff you've done and help them learn how to be better weirdos yeah okay <laughs> i love the way you guys ask these questions and i want to answer this other part that you said but are you what well, no, it's just funny to me that the same person that I'm talking about also had a terrible reputation for not paying people and borrowing <laughs> money, and people never getting it back. And, you know, so, you know, it was definitely a mixed bag, but I did learn some stuff from him and I tried to avoid uh, that. <laughs> but as far as, you know, what I found is that there are younger people who want to do, you know, site specific things with music and are doing it. And they sort of found out about the film and then. COVID hit, you know what I mean? But I think uh, that coming true. out of this, I'd love to work with people that want to do cool, weird events with interesting music in, in unusual locations. And uh, e even if it was more as just kind of like, uh, like, here's how I would go about that rather than taking on all the stress. Right. Even as a, like a mentor um, advisor. Kind but of also thing. like if I do do a new desert show, like we were talking about, there's definitely some people that I know now from having made the film that can help me with finding some you know, younger musicians that are that are doing interesting work that I feel like is in the spirit of Desolation Center, Rad. and and not so much only like had to be somebody that was there in in, in 1984. You know, because I think that would that would be nostalgic. You know, so I, I I think there's a lot of you know sort of younger people that 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 are able to sort of process all the stuff that because there's so much media coming at you and so much information. I mean, back when I was doing these shows, I mean, you know, if you had one book that was, you know, actually insightful, like for me, it was the industrial culture handbook that research did. That was a big deal. And you'd read it over and over again, you know, mm -hmm. I <laughs> like, love research. Research was amazing. Yeah. But so, but you know, now they have to sift through like too much information, but at the same time, I think, you know, people are a little, I, I think people are going to come out of this period a little bit wary of the whole, you know, sort of, commodified festival thing and, and want to do. And so I feel like it's a good time to get this film to a wider audience, you know, that maybe wouldn't see it only playing at film festivals or theaters or things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the opposite of a fire fest, right? I mean, you, you, you've got to, <laughs> oh, you've got to be like, wow, that's, I was waiting for the car accident and there it was, you know, but uh, <laughs> still, I, I do love a good train wreck, you know, and that yeah. those documents or else, yeah, it, it was, it was pretty fun to watch. Competing was, documentaries about the same failed 
festival. I mean, people, yeah. people, people were racing to tell that horror story, you know, but it really, I, the culmination of vanity and a lot of things led to that, you know, but, but speaking of uh, vanity, maybe you can tell us where we can learn more about you, where we can follow you, how we can get the film in our eyeballs, all of that stuff. Okay, great. So it, basically Desolation Center is the name of the film. It's our website. There's a, there's a trailer. There's a lot of information, you know, uh, about the film. And we're going to be streaming through a, a bunch of different platforms next week, starting on Tuesday. And it would be great if somebody w- that was watching this wanted to go to Apple TV, which is basically the same as iTunes, because apparently it well, we're, we're, we're having a whole contest promotion thing, so you can win wow. a lot of cool Desolation Center swag, and we'll, we'll send you a, a sticker and a button and stuff like that just for, for pre-ordering it. But as far as my book publishing goes, it's Amok Books, A-M-O-K, books.com. I don't really have like a, like a, a personal kind of website yeah. thing going, but those are the two things that I've been doing, and you, you can get you know, a lot of info. From both of those yeah we'll, we'll put everything in the show notes for everybody too so you know people are not uh, required to remember what you just said but but that's important to know so apple tv is the place to go ahead of time to get the get the get the promo swag yeah get the promo swag and you can you can uh, enter a competition for all the all of the cool desolation center gear which and and things that bruce leisher who's in the film from Savage Republic designed a lot of it. And um, he does his own letterpress thing. So we have these art cards that he made. Just lots of cool stuff. And also it helps us, it helps me as a filmmaker, apparently, that if people pre-order, Apple notices it, whatever. So I'm told. So yeah, go for it. And lastly, I just want to ask, what is your home address so that we know where to go to shop for all the books and the records behind you that you're uh, (laughs) desperately needing to unload? My home address came up on a Zoom, but it was was called Zoom bombing. It wasn't really that fun. I mean, it was was okay, but uh, they also had Nazi marching music going and other things. That's crazy, man. So, yeah. but uh, So that's a no, that's a no is what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> well, myself. You know. <laughs> are, are you on social media personally? Yeah, yeah. I'm on Facebook and and I, you know, pretty active with that. But yes, all, all that stuff. You can you know. be found. Well, yeah, good to know. Yeah, but I, I was on a I was on a a panel discussion about Muhammad Ali on the anniversary fourth anniversary, and it got zoom bombed by exactly the same characters. So that was. Just uh, the contrast was astounding. It was kind of, it was almost on cue because the, the, the Byron Coley, who was the guy who was doing doing our moderating, so well, you know, it wasn't always so great at those punk shows. You know, there's those Huntington Beach Nazis, and then I'm just like, boom. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Cue, the <laughs> cue the Nazis. <laughs> All right, Joe, Joe, you want to take us out? Uh, yeah, I I don't know. Do I, oh, I I'll tell people if if you guys are in Nashville and you're listening to this show, the the virtual art crawl that they were going to do at the beginning of June has been postponed to this Saturday. So it will be Saturday the twentieth. If you go to the Nashville Art, what is it? Nashville Gallery Association YouTube page at six p.m. You'll find the next video, and basically you can crawl, you can you know do a virtual crawl through all the different galleries that are participating just by watching this video that they've edited together from all of their you know various presentations. So that'll be this Saturday, the twentieth. Very cool. Well, I mean, Stuart, I, w- I wish we had uh, you know more time to talk, but uh, what we'll do is we'll just have you on like in another just like a week or two, and then we'll just 
We'll just keep, yeah. keep doing it. So thanks, you guys. It, I feel like kindred spirits, and it's been a blast. And so, hundred percent, man. People that can just that you never met in your life that see the film and get it. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. much obliged for awesome. having me on. You got it. So everybody, check the show notes for all the information. Make sure you check out Desolation Center. So guys, I'm going to wind it out and then hang loose. We'll do a little green room hang after. All right. And, you know, there won't be any booze or anything, but I suppose you got That's right. I have my American (laughs) Prohibition Museum cup. Uh, (laughs) There you go. All right. But uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Make sure you do do all the subscribe things and all the pushing the things that vote for us or help us or whatever, because, you know, we've been we've been sort of moving our after two plus years of doing an audio only podcast. We're now into the video realm. And so we're having to sort of transition our audience. So if you're listening, we're on the YouTubes and all the other places now. So come come find us. And uh, if you're on YouTube watching it, and you're like, I really don't want to look at this. I'd rather just listen. Well, then you can go you can go find us that way, too. So. Well, yeah, but like us first and subscribe and then yeah. mute us and walk away. <laughs> Some, something for everybody. Show, show your resistance. You know, but uh, anyway, but again, Stuart, thanks so much, guys. And uh, we'll see you on the other side. And we are, are we out? Yes, we're going to go out now. Hang loose. Thanks, everybody. Okay guys, I love the Art Fight podcast, and I listen to every episode even though I am a robot trying to sound like an actual person. I know it takes a lot to keep the podcast going. How can I help? Go to anchor.fm forward slash artfightpodcast, click on the button, the big old button that says support this podcast, and once you get there you'll have three options. You can just choose the lowest level, you're going to pledge 99 cents a month to, to our production and and help us out again anchor.fm forward slash art fight podcast click on support this podcast all right thanks everyone